0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Merritt Tierce, author of the novel Love Me Back, which is a gritty, evocative story of a young single mother who works at various restaurants around Dallas and the self-destructive impulses she caves to. Merritt Tierce is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 author. We began the interview talking about her own Texas upbringing in a very religious home.
1: My grandfather was a Baptist preacher and my dad was a music minister. And really my whole social and cultural awareness of the world was contained within church and specifically fundamentalist evangelical traditions. I grew up in the Baptist Southern Baptist Church, so it was really limited in a lot of ways. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more perspective on it, and there are things that I appreciate about it now. But when I look back on it, I also feel a lot of fear, like I might not have ever escaped it. And I think my lot was actually like, Fine. It's not like anything really horrible ever happened to me because that was how I grew up. And my parents were very loving and completely devoted to me and my brother. But being the person that I am now, I don't want to believe the things that I was raised to think that I absolutely had to believe, you know, on pain of everlasting death or whatever. And so, yeah, I grew up inside that really closed box. And, you know, my identity as a child was a very introspective uh brainy good girl I guess and I was much more comfortable around adults than people my own age and I was also even more comfortable with a book than any human uh and so I I spent you know most of my childhood trying to get away from everything and read um you know reading under my desk at school and Taking bathroom breaks so I could read, and that was my home. And I feel like that has a lot to do with how I ultimately broke out of the religious fundamentalism that my brain had kind of been stuck inside for the first 20 years of my life was just reading. I mean, it was a connection to all kinds of things that in my daily real life I never would have been exposed to.
0: And your mother was a librarian.
1: Yeah, she was, and she showered me with books, and there were very few restrictions placed on what I could read. I mean, I I don't think I had very uh, scandalous intentions as far as reading goes. It's not like I ever really wanted to read anything that anyone around me might have thought of as transgressive. But um, in fact, the only thing my mom, I ever remember my mom telling me I couldn't read was was a, a romance novel that some high school kid had given me, and I didn't even realize it was a romance and it wasn't that she told me I shouldn't read it. She just sort of gently was like, she kind of gently looked down on it and encouraged me to like uh, think of it as beneath me, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, I felt really embarrassed and I didn't read it.
0: So in terms of the way that you grew up, were there a lot of boundaries and, and rules within that? I'm just curious because I know that you at 19 became pregnant sort of similar to your character who becomes pregnant mm-hmm. at 16 and if that was just a horrifying event for your parents i'm sure it ushered you into this next phase of your life that was changing forever
1: yeah i think it was horrifying for all of us actually um and it, you know it's also the most cliche story ever it's like uh but it was it wasn't that i there were a lot of uh, explicit rules or restrictions placed on me it was all just understood that there were, you know, things you didn't do, and um, but I was given very, 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 very little information and instruction about how to be or become a sexual person, and you know that's not really news either. A lot of people in different cultures and classes and communities have trouble talking about sex, but you know I also grew up in Texas, where I think when I was in school. It wasn't abstinence only yet, but it was pretty minimal. I just didn't have any tools whatsoever to deal with a whole range of things, including sexuality. But I just, I mean, I didn't really know how to be a person without a lot of rigid external expectations imposed on me. And so once I I had a little bit of freedom from, you know, the authority of my little doubled routine... I just like kind of, I don't know, you know, that thing that, that babies do when they're newborns where they fling their arms out and like they just like they can't control them. They just like go out into space and then they come back, but they were not really doing it on purpose. They're just like flailing. And that was really what it was like for me, like going from the childhood that I, you know, went from towards things that I was interested in and towards a less religious community. I inevitably found all kinds of things that I just like couldn't figure out without diving into them and really you know kind of drowning for a while
0: well it seems like a lot of those things came out in your book were you always a writer did you keep a journal when you were a kid
1: yeah well yes I had I have many um I kept the first 10 pages of many journals when I was a kid (laughs) I don't know Yeah, but I always thought of myself as a writer, and I'm still basically in the same place. I mean, now I have a book, which is enormous validation on one level, but also there's that, and then there's thinking of myself as a writer. I mean, I still feel the same way about it as I did when I was 12 or whatever. Like, I have the same needs as far as, like, what I want from it, and I have the same orientation toward my own abilities, and, like, a lot of that has not changed at all.
0: What are those needs that you are talking about?
1: I just want to be really good at something and writing is what I'm really good at. I mean, I I'm, I'm better at writing than I am at anything else that I can do in life. And so if I keep doing it, then I get to keep having that feeling of being really good at something and I I love that feeling. I love being I think it's also relative. I mean, I I love being the best at something or being, you know, better at something than other people and that's the thing that I can do. So there's that need, but then there's also um making something. And this is what I can make. You know, I can't build furniture or uh, I I can't sing. I can't there's all kinds of like things that people make that I don't know how to will probably never know how to do, but this is the thing that I can make and making is really important to me as a reason for being alive and what's good about being alive. And I also, I feel like I, one of the reasons that I don't like talking is that it's really hard for me to get from inside my head to outside to, you know, the, the receiver. And writing is so different. It's such a different transmission. It's like um, very fluid. And so if we were having this conversation, you know, via some sort of textual mode, it would be, really different for me. I would probably be saying completely different things. And I don't know why that is, but it's very comfortable. It's like, um, so I need it for that reason, too.
0: You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Merritt Tierce, author of the novel Love Me Back. I know the germ of your novel Love Me Back came from your own life experience. In the book, the main character, Marie, is a 16-year-old single mother who is a server at various restaurants around Dallas. Her self-destructive behavior includes drugs, cutting, and sex with a revolving door of coworkers and restaurant owners and people she comes across at the restaurant. Meanwhile, she's married and has a baby, so Marie is making a lot of bad choices. What do you feel is her impetus to behave like she does and for the pain she is holding?
1: I think a lot of it comes from just emerging into adulthood and trying to take some ownership of your own life and having a lot of fear about that, about, you know, what if you mess it up? Um, Sorry, I almost cursed. I curse a lot which may be another reason I don't like being interviewed. (laughs) So, yeah, I think for her, she's really scared to try because if she, you know, a lot of times it's easier to see the things that you shouldn't do and that you know will be harmful to you than it is to figure out exactly what will be great for you. And especially as a young person, I think, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who teaches at an inner city school with like 95% poverty. And uh, she was just talking about how frustrated she was that a lot of her kids, like, they don't care. There's nothing you can do to make them care. And they, you know, they're just impenetrable. And even when she, you know, knows that they're smart and that they have potential and that, you know, and she's had meaningful interactions with them outside of participating in the, you know, the school thing, whatever school is, there's nothing she can do to make them, you know, care about themselves or push forward in their own life. And we were talking about how that comes from feeling like, you know, once you get so far behind yourself, you just feel like it's hopeless and like it would be, Ridiculous of you to try to make anything of yourself because how could you? And so I think a lot of the choices that Marie makes, I mean, bad choices build on their own bad momentum. And um, so it takes her a long time to find some traction. Um, and, you, you know, at, by the end of the book, you don't even really know if she will. Uh, I think that she does, she changes in the sense that. Uh, I think at the beginning of the book, when she's younger, she seems much more opaque to herself. And by the end of the book, she's more, you know, aware. But she still is doing harmful things, and in fact, more and more harmful things. You could argue to herself and, and to others, but I think mainly herself. And I think that that's significant because um, she really doesn't want to hurt anyone else, and so she directs
0: Got your happy price, price line. You said this mirrors a lot of your life, living sort of hard and fast and reckless. And, you know, you're in your 20s. You're just lost and trying to find yourself. And many people are lost in their 20s and have different sort of ways that they try to find themselves. But I'm curious about your parents' reception to this novel.
1: Um, I don't think they've read it. I don't know for sure, but pretty sure they haven't read it. They're really proud of me. and they sent me selfies of them with the book in a Barnes & Noble somewhere. I mean, like, it's not like... You can't really hide the fact that you've published a book um, from your parents. But uh, I don't know. And I honestly, if they do read it, I sort of doubt we'll ever talk about it. I'm not sure. I mean, there's the internet. So for all I know, they could have read everything I've ever written and listened to every interview I've ever done. And I don't know. It's kind of strange, but it's also kind of the way my relationship with my parents has always worked. So leading up to the publication of the book, as it got more and more real, I did worry about that. I mean, I never really spent a whole lot of time worrying if this or that person that this or that character was modeled on would care or would be upset with me or would think anything, I don't know. Or if my own personal revelations would be uh, you know shocking to people who knew me but like the only thing i did think about in that vein was uh my parents and how they lived through a lot of my 20s with me of course but sort of on a on another side in a different hemisphere of it and so i don't know really like what it would be like for them to read my story i mean i feel like if your child is not a writer and you don't have the kind of relationship with them where you tell each other everything, then you could never know what really happens in their life. And it's hard for me to imagine not reading a book that one of my kids wrote, especially if I knew it was really um, autobiographical or personal or, I mean, even if it wasn't, it's just, you know, seems like a thing you would do. But, but every time I get some piece of information that leads me to believe they haven't read the book, I feel really
0: Well, you were saying earlier that one of the reasons that you like to write is because you have this sort of need to be really good at something. And I'm wondering if Marie had a need like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I almost mentioned that earlier as just one of the things that is perhaps plays a role in the bad choices that she makes is that she does have a really deep desire to be really good at something. And uh, you get a sense that she was you know, of above average intelligence, and wanted to do something with that, and and then that is just kind of truncated um, that path. And so, uh, I think she's exercising her anger about that in a lot of ways by taking it out on herself, and and yet she can't help casting about for something to be really good at, and it eventually turns out to be waiting tables. I mean, just because that's what she's doing. And so I don't know. In a a lot of ways, maybe that could seem pathetic to people, especially people who have never waited tables, I would think. You know, like, why in the world would anyone want to be great at waiting tables? But it also underscores the fact that it's not that she wants to be great at waiting tables. She just wants to be great at something. And that's what there is to work in.
0: It seemed like she also was really good at one night stands and casual sex. I mean, she got she got she got hurt along the way. But I mean, I think so many young women, regardless of if they're young mothers, are maybe misguided about sex and feel that if they're good at it, it gives them value, where, as opposed to thinking about what it offers them. But what do you think the role of all the sex she's having has in her own psyche? I
1: think that. Um... For the most part, it's so much easier for women to give away sex than it is for men. And that, you know, what's hard is rebuffing all of the, you know, what Marie's doing is just like saying yes completely indiscriminately to anyone. I mean, it's like she doesn't even look at who's asking a lot of the time. She's just like, sure, whatever, you can have it. And so in that sense, that's her being very not good at something. I mean, she's being not good at saying no to people, which is uh, definitely a skill that a young woman needs to enter young womanhood, like, arm to the hilt with, because it's hard to hold on to whatever you want for yourself when a lot of people, um, especially men, are constantly asking you to give them something. And also, I, I say she's not good at it because I don't think the sex is about the sex for her. I think it's just another iteration of self-harm. It's like it doesn't even matter her, to her that it's sex. It's just that's her being good at really at hurting herself any way she can. And that's just, you know, another weapon in her arsenal.
0: Right. She's just good at escaping everything. And this is how yeah. she does it in her world. What would you say to your 19-year-old self being the self you are now?
1: Uh, See you on the other side? I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, I basically think that there was no way for me to get from there to here except the way that I went. So I don't know. I think I would just say I love you. And that's it. I mean, I'm not sure. That's such a hard question, really. Because I'm also imagining, I mean, my son turns 15 in a couple weeks. And so I, my children are, you know, really fast approaching the the age that I was when I feel like everything just kind of went haywire and um, I'm terrified for them and for me. I'm like, I've never felt very confident as a parent and um, I like the relationship I have with my kids and I feel like they like the relationship they have with me, but it's a little uh, unorthodox, I guess. I don't know. Uh, We've just kind of invented it together, but no matter what kind of parent you are, you feel really helpless. When it comes to, like, the kids have to grow up and go out there, and there's nothing you can do to protect them from crisis, whether it's, you know, coming from within them or from outside or both.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Sure. One of my absolute favorite writers is Kay Ryan, who's a a poet. And so I'll read a couple of her poems. And I have never tried to write poetry. I don't know how to read poetry. I don't know how to explain it. So that's all my disclaimer. But I know that when I read poetry, I love, I have the feeling that I'm looking for from reading. And she gives me that feeling more than anybody. Um, So this is from her collection called Say Uncle, uh, which is over 20 years old now. But um, this is a poem called A Hundred Bolts of Satin. All you have to lose is one connection, and the mind uncouples all the way back. It seems to have been a train. There seems to have been a track. The things that you unpack from the abandoned cars cannot sustain life. A crate of tractor axles, for example. A dozen dozen clasped knives, a hundred bolts of satin. Perhaps you specialized more than you imagined. So I love her poems because most of the time they're just one or two absolutely perfect sentences. And um, they are just so powerful and strong and joyful in the way they use language, but not naive or simple at all. And I love the way that she conceptualizes the mind as a really physical space. I really get that. Um, So... This poem um, is called Grazing Horses. Sometimes the green pasture of the mind tilts abruptly. The grazing horses struggle crazily for purchase on the frictionless, nearly vertical surface. Their furniture-fine legs buckle on the incline. Unhorsed by slant, they weren't designed to climb and can't. So, yeah, I love her. I actually had dinner with her um, once by chance at a writer's thing and I was just so I was actually struck dumb because I couldn't believe that I had ended up at a table with her and I couldn't even ever tell her how much her work means to me
0: (laughs) wouldn't that have been so upsetting if you had dinner with her and she was totally horrible to the wait staff
1: (laughs) yes no but of course she wasn't she was uh beautiful in person
0: I can't imagine a poet being mean to a waiter. (laughs) Can you read a short passage from something you wrote? It could be something that you thought was hard to write, or something that changed from the first draft, or just something you feel you succeeded at.
1: I had a story published in the Oxford American this past fall called uh, Solitaire, and I've written more versions of this story than any. I've probably written like a book's worth of versions of this story over seven or eight years, and so I'm just going to read a paragraph from one of the first versions and then from the published version. This is the paragraph from the version that was um, one of my original attempts. In a matter of weeks, my belly gets a profile. I notice this on accident as I get out of the shower and walk past the mirror. I say, and the hairs on my neck scream for another look as if I had Lot's wife on my back. I don't look again, but the memory might as well be all I can see. The belly of a milkful puppy, stretched and soft. And then the published version goes like this. In a matter of weeks, her belly gets a profile. She notices as she steps out of the shower and walks past a mirror. She says, the hairs on her neck screaming for another look. The belly of a milkful puppy, stretched and soft. So I just took like seven years for that paragraph to get rid of its weak sentences and its weird references and um it even you know became third person instead of first person and all of that was so gradual i mean i might have made one change to it every other year <laughs> so but i love the finished version and i can barely stand to i can't believe i just like read on air the original version
0: Where do you write?
1: I have a bad habit of like setting up places for myself to work and then not working there. So I write, I don't know, it's more about the environment. It either has to be super, super loud, like goth club drowning out decibels or uh, absolutely quiet. I can't deal with anything in the middle. I'm usually looking for that and I'll write wherever I find it. I do have a little closet in my house. It's a cedar closet that has been. Turned into a writing closet, but I haven't been there in a long time because a roach flew out of it the last time I opened the door. And now I'm like really scared to go in there, <laughs> which is sad because, like, I have so much meaningful stuff in there, stuff to the walls, like um, sentences that I like, and ideas and pictures. And uh, it was like my sacred place. And now I, I feel like I just can't know that I won't be attacked by a roach if I go in there.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Um, I feel like I'm always trying to get to writing, so I don't know how to conceptualize uh, trying to get away from writing yet. Um, I mean, I yeah, I hardly ever write because I'm just, I mean, I'm thinking a lot and walking around a lot and stuff is happening inside my brain at a really, like, remote site, but uh, I I've never tried to get away from writing because it's so hard to get there in the first place.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Uh, I show it to myself for a long time. I mean, like, I'll revise a story. I'll print 300 copies of it. I mean, like 300 different versions of it before I feel like it's to a place where I could show someone else and even then i never know what to do with what they think of it um it feels really volatile to me to like let someone else's opinion or thoughts change it that said um my friend alexander Maxix who's a, a novelist um we met at iowa and he's definitely my best first reader
0: how have you dealt with rejection
1: you know what's strange is that uh, the more you know notches of success I gather the more fragile I feel. I, I used to be like completely impervious to rejection I think because I just expected it and now that sometimes every so often something really big and great happens for me as a writer it's weird. I start to feel more aware of all the things that are happening to all the other writers whereas I used to never care and not even think about that. And I think it's really dangerous too. I don't think you can it's such an arbitrary world in so many ways that it's just death to think about what's happening for anyone else or why or whatever. Um and especially like now when all the year end lists are coming out and the prizes and all of that. It's just like I guess I deal with rejection by trying to reject it. And, um, coming back to the idea that I'm never going to be writing for anyone's approval, uh, except, you know, my own. But that said, I mean, it does make a difference when somebody says, yes, I want to publish your book, or we want to give you this prize, or we want to put you on this list. It makes a difference because then ultimately you get more time to write. And so it's hard to ignore it or to say, you know, oh, I'm above all that.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I don't think I have a favorite word. I have a favorite class of words, though, which is words that don't repeat any letters. Uh, They just look really beautiful to me. So and there's a word for those words. uh, They're called isograms. And so especially like the longer they are, the more striking, I think, um, like, Facetiously is one. And facetiously actually also has all five vowels in it, in order. And a Y at the end is a bonus. Uncopyrightable is one of the longest ones.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Merritt Tierce, author of Love Me Back. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail dot com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.